a meteorologist is a scientist who studies the weather. And they'll tell us that a storm, when it forms, isn't just a random thing. There are forces that organize themselves in a certain way. And though the wind blows where it wills, and we can't tell for certain where it's going, the processes that work in a gathering storm typically follow certain patterns that are determined by the natural laws that God has set up. And that's why the weather can be at all predictable. What is true in the natural world of natural forces is also true in the world of sinful men. As God's plan unfolds in the world, there's a continuing pattern of these gathering storms of Christ's enemies who at any point in history, if they were able, would remove Christianity root and branch from the earth. I'm quoting Adolf Hitler, actually, who claimed that he had the power and would do that. Obviously, God didn't allow him to do that. At the point of Christ's ministry, his earthly ministry, which we're about to read in our text, it was occurred about the middle of the Passion Week, nearing uh, the crucifixion. With the end approaching, Christ's enemies had him in their midst. They thought he was within their grasp, and they wouldn't relent until, at least humanly speaking, uh, they had brought him down. At this time, his enemies, who were once too busy fighting amongst themselves to mount any organized defense, were coalescing. There were scribes or lawyers. There were Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, as we read about in our passage last time. These were men who previously had no love for each other, but who now were finding common ground in their hatred of God's anointed. This time, Jesus wouldn't simply pass through their midst, as he did in the beginning of his ministry when they opposed him at Nazareth and would have thrown him headlong from the Temple Mount. This time, Jesus' time had come. He was ready to be offered, and the final preparations for that divine sacrifice were being put into place by God himself. No one would take his life from him, we remind ourselves. He would give it of his own accord. From their earthly perspective, they must take him down. They weren't acquainted with the ways of heaven, which he represented. And so he must be destroyed. We saw it in the, in the preceding verses in verses 13 through 17, which we looked at in our previous message. We talked about the carnal wisdom of these religious leaders who were scheming to ask him a question about taxes. They thought that their question would be something that he couldn't answer without incriminating himself. But Jesus, in his heavenly answer, in his heavenly wisdom, Jesus left them speechless when he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. They marveled when he answered in that way and did not incriminate himself, but in a sense, he actually incriminated them. We talked also last time about their flattery. They came to him calling him good master, rabbi, teacher. We know that you are true. You don't regard the person of men, but you teach the way of God in truth. Of course, they were incriminating themselves. If he taught the way of God in truth, why were they rejecting him? And they came to him asking him that question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Their flattery was simply an outward show. They were using praise as an outward show for the purpose of their personal and earthly gain. It was the very opposite of sincerity, honest, honesty, and truth in the inward parts. And also last time we talked about their blatant earthly mindedness, where even in the presence of Jesus the Holy One, whose life and teaching was taking, taken up almost solely with spiritual concerns, 
They were so focused on earthly concern like concerns like taxes and their petty power struggle with Jesus that they rejected their Messiah who had come to save them from their sins. Our text this morning, which continues in Mark chapter 12, gives us another view of these religious leaders who claiming to be learned in the finer points of religion. Once again, they showed their ignorance of the important things which it was their responsibility to know. So please follow along with me. This time uh, we are looking specifically at a group of Sadducees. And uh, this uh, incident begins uh, to be described in verse 18. So please follow along with me as I read beginning there. And we will read down through verse 27. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him. And they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. And so the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Now, in order to approach this passage, let's draw from Jesus' own words in verse 24, where he says, Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Now, as always, when we look at any historical passage, our concern isn't so much with the group of people who lived long ago, even though they may have been the ones directly addressed. In this case, it was specifically a group of a very prideful sect called the Sadducees. But the lesson here is actually for us. We need to be reminded of the necessity of humility before God lest our minds also be corrupted and blinded. So here's our summary. In the Sadducees' prideful, condescending treatment of Jesus, their Messiah, there is an important lesson for us, that a proper understanding of God's power of the Scriptures and of ourselves cannot even begin without humility. Now, the outline for the message is actually implied in the summary. My points this morning will be on the three areas uh, in these men who considered themselves wiser than the rest, how they were actually woefully ignorant. They were, first of all, ignorant of God's power. They were ignorant of the scriptures. And I would add to that that they were also ignorant of themselves, just like those today who are wise in their own conceit. If only they could recognize their ignorance, they could begin to attain the useful knowledge that would set them on the path to eternal life. So with that introduction, let us look to the Lord once again and ask his blessing on our time in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for a beautiful day outside with the sun shining in. Thank you for the glorious world that you have created, Lord, that even in its fallen state is still a reflection of your amazing glory. And so as we come together on this sunny Lord's Day, we desire, dear Lord, to exalt the Son of God that you have sent into the world to save us from our sins. We desire to study how he dealt with some of these enemies in his earthly ministry. And we desire to study this not because we want to see how others were put in their place, but we desire, dear Lord, uh, that we might also recognize our own flaws, our own faults, our own weaknesses, 
our own vulnerability to be put in our place. And so we ask as we come before you today that you would open our minds to the truths that are given here, the teaching of our Lord and Savior. May we respond with an open and contrite heart as we consider this passage today. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's consider the first of our three points this morning. Three areas of ignorance in these holier-than-thou and wiser-than-thou Pharisees, at least wiser in their own minds. And the first area of their ignorance was that they were ignorant of God's power. Unregenerate man, I think, is an amazing creature. He can live indefinitely in the world that God has created, breathing God's air, eating God's food, drinking God's water, watching the life-giving sun rise day after day and set in the evening and rise again the next day. They can see the indescribable miracles of springtime after a dark and cold winter. And they can still convince themselves that they've witnessed nothing especially remarkable. But the believer, as believers, we see God with the eye of faith. We read in our opening reading today, the works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. And then verse 4 in that passage that we read this morning says, He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. The world looks upon these amazing things in God's creation and ah, just another day, another passing day. Nothing particularly remarkable about it. But the Lord here tells us that his works are to be studied by all who have pleasure in them. And our pleasure derives from the fact that we know and understand that God has created these things as a reflection of himself. And so for that reason, we love him. We see that he is gracious and full of compassion. And we see it in the wonderful works that he's created. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19 at the words of Paul who says something rather similar to what the psalmist said. Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 19 Paul is talking about the Lord showing what Paul says is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of of his mighty power. What he's saying is that his works, his power, is visible to us because our eyes have been opened to see it. Now, the world recognizes the power uh, that is in the world. It is evident in so many ways in earthquakes and other kinds of, uh, of, of uh, natural disasters and natural workings. They see the power. They don't understand where that power came from. As believers, we see it because our eyes have been opened to it. Now, in the passage we just read, we see men who came to Jesus thinking that by their own cleverness, they could outsmart the Son of God. They didn't seem to know that in the process, they would only demonstrate their own ignorance. As it says in Romans chapter 1, thinking themselves to be wise, they became what? foolish. They were fools because their thinking refused to acknowledge the power of God that holds together everything God has made and will bring to pass everything God has decreed. Now, what was it that caused this blindness on their part? Well, I would suggest several things. First of all, their blindness was in the fact that they were rationalists. Rationalists. Though they acknowledged God's existence in the case of the Sadducees, as well as the Pharisees, they exalted human reason as the highest ideal. Now, we're not opposed to reason, but human reason alone isn't sufficient to understand all things that God has done. Now, in Israel, in Jesus' time, the Sadducees were the rationalists. They were the ones who controlled Israel's most sacred institution, the temple. 
But they didn't really believe in the spiritual meaning of what that temple stood for. If we fast forward into more recent times in the 18th century, when our country was founded, the rationalists included deists like Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson claimed to respect the Bible, but he created a Bible that took out everything that he couldn't explain by his human reason, including all the miracles that Jesus performed and the resurrection. People still talk about the Jefferson Bible. In our own day, the rationalists would include the great majority, unfortunately, of the modern clergy who control most of our modern churches, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. It's a sad state of affairs when the churches of a land are led by those who don't even believe what they claim to be preaching. There's also a bizarre side effect of rationalistic thinking. And that is that whenever the truth is suppressed, they must find a substitute to raise up in its place. The Sadducees in Jesus' day were the party of the high priests. Most of them were spiritually corrupt, but they were meticulous in the ceremonial aspects of religion, outward things like dietary laws, the washing of hands and utensils and so on. And their prideful precision in those things took the place of true religion, which requires a humble heart and a desire for God. Now, in modern times, the true gospel, as the true gospel was abandoned, another gospel had to be set up in its place. We've talked about one of those other gospels uh, that came about in the 19th century. I've mentioned these before. It was called the social gospel. And one of its advocates in America was a man named Walter Rauschenbusch. He lived from 1861 to 1918. In my piano tuning travels, I go off into a town in Massachusetts called Westford, Massachusetts. Beautiful New England town with a beautiful big white church and steeple and beautiful town common and so on. And there was a building there called the Rauschenbusch Center. And I used to go by that and I Finally, I said, who is this Rauschenbusch guy? Where, wh- wh- what's, what's the meaning of this building here? Well, Rauschenbusch was raised in an, in an Orthodox uh, Christian home. He grew up uh, uh, being taught the Protestant doctrines of biblical literalism, uh, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And he claimed that at age 17, he experienced a personal religious conversion which he said influenced my soul down to its depths. He said, like the prodigal son, I came to my father and I began to pray for help and I got it. But then he says, later on, I felt that my experience was incomplete. He said he had focused on repentance from personal sins, but not from social sins. Uh Uh-oh, that's where trouble often starts. And he attended Rochester Theological Seminary in Rochester, New York. And when he went to that seminary, the things that he had er learned early in life were abandoned. Now, I know you're shocked to think that a young man would go to seminary and that his higher education would challenge what he was taught, what he had learned in the home. That's unheard of, right? No, actually, that happens all the time. In fact, there are very few institutions of higher learning where that does not happen. In Rochester, he learned of the higher criticism. The higher critics were those who who challenged the authority of Scripture. They were the rationalists of the 19th century who were busily taking over the seminaries. I always wondered why people who were skeptical and deniers of divine inspiration would have any desire to spend their life teaching in a seminary. Hmm. Tells us something about the adversary, doesn't it? The adversary populates the places where uh, the preachers of God's word are going to be educated. Well, Rauschenbusch's new ideas, his new beliefs, would lead him to later comment, he said, my inherited ideas about the inerrancy of the Bible became untenable. In other words, I could no longer believe them. 
And the result was that Rauschenbusch no longer believed that Jesus' death was an act of substitutionary atonement. In Rauschenbusch's words, Jesus died to substitute love for selfishness as the basis of human society. Rauschenbusch explained that the kingdom of God, he no longer believed, was a matter of getting individuals to heaven, but it was a matter of transforming life on earth into the harmony of heaven. That's what seminary taught him. And he became a leader in a movement of social gospel. The point is that when spiritual leaders are filled with their own ways and not God's ways, they abandon their belief in the truth. And at that point, their powers of reason no longer have a sure foundation. And over time, their reason can often take them to some absurd conclusions. Let me give you an example of that. This is a news article. I happened to read this uh, in 2019. And it said that students at a seminary in New York, New York City, Manhattan actually, had recently held a religious ritual in which they confessed their sins to plants during a chapel service. It was an experience that a campus spokesman defended as, quote, beautiful, a beautiful moving ritual. That seminary was Union Theological Seminary in Manhattan. It actually is in an area called Morningside Heights, which is just north of uh, the Upper West Side, what's called the Upper West Side, very upscale area, an intellectual center right near Columbia University. And in fact, uh, I think Union Seminary is now a part of Columbia University. And they shared on uh, their Twitter account a photo of a group of students speaking to an arrangement of houseplants. This is no joke, this is serious. And they said, today in chapel, we confessed to plants. Together, we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor. I guess they, they couldn't bring themselves to offer those things to God. Instead, they offered it to plants. According to its website, Union Theological Seminary, was founded in 1836 by nine Presbyterian ministers who were seeking, quote, a new vision for theological education, end quote. I wonder if that's the new vision they had in mind. But anyway, what leads otherwise intelligent people to absurdities like this is certainly not a defect in the gospel. It's a defect in the heart of man. It's a rejection of the true gospel. Take a look at Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, I think, gives us a little insight. In Acts chapter 24, there was a ruler, a Roman official, named Felix. And when Paul was in prison, in a Roman prison, we're told in verse 24, it says, After some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning faith in Christ or concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as, as he, meaning Paul, reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. King James there says he trembled. And he answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Now, there's no c contradiction between the Bible and reason. In fact, doesn't, uh, doesn't the Bible say, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. But that reasonable appeal by the prophet Isaiah was preceded by this admonition. In other words, the point is, before you can come and have your sins forgiven, he says, uh, Isaiah said, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, the Lord said. 
cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. In other words, repent and then come and let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. But you see, there's the rub. That was the problem for Felix too. Because when reason comes into conflict with man's sinful desires, as it did when Paul reasoned with Felix, Felix had a decision to make. And his decision was, go away, Paul, for now. Don't call me, I'll call you. My guess is that Felix never called. Chose instead to die in his sins, most likely. That's just speculation, but it's probably true. So the first reason for the ignorance of the Sadducees was that they were rationalists. Their ignorance of the power of God was that they were rationalists. They insisted in the pride of their own hearts that their beliefs must be in accord with their human wisdom, their human reason. Not understanding that human reason is imperfect and fallen. But there was another cause for their blindness regarding the power of God, their ignorance of the power of God, and that is that they were materialists. Materialism is both a philosophy and a way of life. As a philosophy, it's the doctrine that nothing exists except for physical matter, things and stuff, that is, and its movements and modifications. That's a definition of materialism. But materialism is also a way of life. It's the tendency to consider material things, material possessions, and physical comfort to be more important than spiritual values. The Sadducees were actually materialists in both ways because they not only lived materialistically, but they were wise in their own conceits thinking that they were smarter than the masses who believed in a higher power and who took Jesus seriously, while the Sadducees really did not. Josephus was a Jewish historian who lived in Jesus' day, and he writes in his, one, of his, uh, one of his writings called The Antiquities of the Jews, he says the doctrine of the Sadducees is this, that souls die with their bodies. But this doctrine is received only by a few, Josephus says, yet by those still of the greatest dignity. So what he's saying is the few who received that doctrine were mostly those of high elitist position in society, the rich and the powerful. But Josephus is saying that at least in his day it was rejected by the common people. So the entire story that the, that the Sadducees uh, brought to Jesus about the resurrection. They were only posturing. They didn't even believe in a, in a resurrection uh, after death. They didn't even believe in a resurrection. In fact, they were mocking it. Their only interest was in the gamesmanship. They were attempting to score points against Jesus. They did it almost as a game. They saw Jesus as their enemy. Uh, early on, they didn't see him as a serious enemy, but that became more and more serious as the people following Jesus became a threat uh, to the Sadducees and their power. So the Sadducees were not only rationalists and materialists, but at a given point, they also became politicians. It's interesting that the word politician comes from the word polis, which means city. It's interesting considering how the Bible describes the godly and the ungodly in terms of the cities or kingdoms that, that they inhabit. Augustine referred to it as the city of man and the city of God. The Sadducees were obviously men of the world. They were far more interested in the city of man, in the kingdom of this world, where they held their power, than they were in the kingdom of God, where they held no power, and where they were completely ignorant. To the Sadducees, it seems that Jesus was little more than kind of a loony fanatic. One famous politician in our day referred to people like Jesus and those who follow him as a basket of deplorables. I think that's how they looked upon Jesus and his followers. 
Only when his claim to be the Messiah brought him into direct conflict with their power politics did they find it necessary to intervene. According to one Bible resource, quote, in this encounter with our Lord in regard to the resurrection, there is an element of contempt implied in the illustration that they bring, as if till almost the end they failed to take him seriously. Once they did take him seriously, however, they speedily brought about his arrest and his death. I think there's an important question for us to ask ourselves in this ignorance of the power of God. There's an interesting dynamic that goes on in the church today, not only today, but even in Paul's day. Most people are only along for the ride. That's Unfortunately, that is true. They're on the train, sort of looking out at the scenery and finding pleasure in it, enjoying it. They're anticipating the glorious arrival in heaven, but they're not really involved. They're sort of like the the guy in the engine compartment who's shoveling coal into the burner. There's a moment of truth, however. I've seen it happen with young people many times, especially after they come to understand what the Christian faith really demands. Most children will sort of follow Uh, the faith of their parents until the time comes when they have to decide for themselves whether it's really true or not. At that point, they are either going to eagerly embrace it or knowingly reject it. If we only knew the numbers in our day who, when they come to that point, will openly reject what they've been taught. The numbers are, I would say these days, over 90% of young people do not follow the faith of their parents any longer. That's a societal change, I think. Maybe it's just a return to the reality of the fact that even in the old days when they followed the faith of their parents, it was really just an external thing. And now that the outward Christian life is no longer required, uh, I think maybe young people are being more honest. I hope the young people in our church are not going to do that, walk away. What will we do as a cross-section, a small cross-section of the church, a cross-section of humanity? In this room, we have both male and female, young and old. We've all come out of different walks of life, different experiences. Have we known and experienced the power of God in our own life? Do we know it? Do we understand it? And will that power keep us until the day of Christ? It's something we all need to ask ourselves, and we need to ask ourselves that question continually. So the Sadducees were ignorant of God's power, but let's go on to our second point. The second thing Jesus said about them. He says, are you not therefore mistaken, verse 24, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? They were ignorant of the scriptures. These were those Elitists who should have known the scriptures most of all. Think of uh, the fact of, of their lack of spiritual discernment. That's what really what Jesus was saying. You know the outward things, the rituals, the ceremonies. You know the scriptures in that way. But you are lacking in spiritual discernment. Think of the example even of Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was one of Israel's greatest great rabbis. Unlike the Sadducees, Nicodemus was at least sincere when he came to Jesus with questions. You remember, he's the one that came to Jesus by night, and he asked Jesus, he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then he continued to inquire uh, of Jesus. And when Jesus began to explain to him The way of God, and Jesus used an illustration uh, that coming to know the Lord was like a second birth. You remember how Nicodemus just, he couldn't grasp that. Can a person come, return to his mother's womb and be born for a second time? And of course, Jesus was amazed at his lack of spiritual understanding. Jesus said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? 
and you do not know these things? Seems clear that Nicodemus was later converted and did come to know the Lord, but Jesus' encounter with him at that time shows that intelligence and scholarship simply aren't enough. The scriptures are spiritually discerned only by a heart that's been spiritually enlightened by the Spirit of God. Early in my Christian life, I was looking through some old books for sale. That was an old habit of mine. And uh, I found at a, at a yard sale this huge scholarly set of Bible dictionaries. I think there were five or six volumes. It was a couple thousand pages of tiny little print. And I thought I had really found something good. It dated from the 1800s. I thought that would be probably, it would probably be respectful of the Bible and so on. Didn't take many reading many entries in that Bible encyclopedia that I realized that they questioned divine inspiration really on almost every page. That was my early introduction to the fact that there are many scholars who make it their life's work to study the Bible and then make it their life's work to question whether what it says is even true. Kind of a strange thing. I would say, <laughs> find another line of work if that's your only intention, to tear down what you have spent your life studying. But that's why the church is in such a mess today. People are biblically learned, but they are willfully ignorant. The Sadducees of all, or most of all, perhaps, were smug, the most smug of all, assuming themselves to be the biblical scholars. They didn't openly deny the Jewish faith, but they were masters at denying what the scriptures actually teach. And they would do this in various ways, such as the ways in which they denied God's power in the resurrection. For example, they would do it by just denying the authority of the passages that teach clearly that there is life after death. And realize in, in their day, it would have been Old Testament passages only. So if you try to prove in the, the resurrection of the body after death, the body and the soul, if you try to use the book of Psalms, they would say, well, Psalms is just, that's just poet, that's poetry. You can't use poetry to prove the resurrection. So you might say, okay, let's, let's use the prophets. Let's use maybe Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, which says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And to a verse like that, they'd say, well, that's, that's prophecy. That's it's very figurative. It must mean something else. If you quoted Moses from the book of the law, where God says, there was no God besides me, I kill and I make alive. Well, even of that, they would say there must be some other explanation. It can't mean that he makes alive after he has killed. You ever try to use the Bible, the Bible to defend a doctrine? And every verse you use is rejected by that person for one reason or, or another. Well, that's really what the Sadducees were all about. And I would say, sadly, that's where most of our churches are today as well. And another way the Sadducees would argue against the resurrection is what we would call a straw man. A straw man is where you set up uh, you you claim that your, your your opponent believes this and then you proceed to knock down that straw man as if you have defeated by arguments your opponent. So they would argue not so much against scripture, but they would argue against the silly additions and questions that the rabbis had added to the scripture. For example, they would the rabbis would argue such silly things as, whether or not a person would rise in his clothes or not. And if so, would they be his grave clothes or the clothes that he wore when he was living? That would, that's an important debate, right? We have to have that argument. Or they would argue whether the soul and the body would be judged together or separately. They would argue over whether one's sins were the sins of the body or the sins of the soul. 
They would argue over whether the ghost of Samuel that appeared to Saul looked as he did in real life, or if a person would have the same bodily defects that he had in life, or if those bodily defects were gone. They would argue over whether all the Jews would rise from the sacred land of Palestine, or would they rise from the individual nations in which they lived. There were many straw man arguments that the Sadducees would set up, and then they would proceed to knock them down as they mocked their opponents. That's exactly what they were doing with Jesus. They would use them to throw out the entire doctrine of the resurrection and to call it null and void. And so here in this message, we see how carefully they laid out their questions. They present this uh, back in Mark chapter 12. They presented this silly scenario based on the law of Moses, which they claimed to believe, this story of seven brothers who one after the other marry the same woman and they leave no children. And then they asked for Jesus' answer. Their entire question was a mockery. They ask him, when they rise, whose wife shall he be? Shall she be? But how does Jesus answer? He doesn't answer the actual question that they ask because that was a silly question with an ulterior motive. He knew their real motive. They were ignorant, he told them, not knowing the scripture or the power of God. And the reason is that they were men of the world, not men of faith. Their understanding was as earthly as people today who created in their minds this image of heaven, of people sitting up there uh, playing harps as they sit on clouds. The Bible never describes heaven in that way. And so the resurrection, as we know, is not, is not about this earthly life. It's about heaven. Resurrection is about heaven where God is everything, where God is the light. And we will surround his throne and acknowledge that he alone is worthy of our worship. We're not just sitting up there in peace and just enjoying life with God out of the picture. That's not what the resurrection is. It's not what it's all about. That's not the purpose of it. The purpose of it is God-centered. No one whose sole interest is in the things of this world can even begin to understand the world to come. And in fact, Jesus didn't even try to prove it to them, did he? He could only say, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. Sadducees were playing mind games with God as to the real meaning of the scripture and what it requires of man. Just as many people do today, playing games with God. That's a dangerous thing. Because God said, God is not mocked. If you've had this book, this Bible open to you, which everyone sitting in this room has had that. I don't mean just here, but the Lord has seen fit uh, that, you're, that you have had a Bible placed in your possession. And I would say, if that's the case, use it as a roadmap to finding and knowing the God who gave it to you. Don't use it as the, uh, as the Sadducees and Pharisees did who stumbled on it, stumbled over it, missed it completely on the road to perdition, but they did so by walking over this blessed book. So they were ignorant of God's power. They were ignorant of the scriptures. And thirdly, and this may be the most basic problem of all, they were ignorant of themselves. They were ignorant of themselves. The famous, the famous Scottish philosopher David Hume said, when men are most sure and arrogant, they are commonly most mistaken. Now, I would say that David Hume didn't necessarily apply that statement properly, but that statement taken by itself is correct. When men are most sure and arrogant, they are commonly most mistaken. 
Likewise, there's an old Arab proverb that says, arrogance diminishes wisdom. Arrogance diminishes wisdom. Perhaps the Sadducees' greatest danger was that in their exaltation of themselves, they were most ignorant of themselves. They were ignorant, for example, regarding their standing with other men, other men and women. Like most elitists, they had a superiority complex. Nobody can be so amusingly arrogant, someone says, I like this, no one can be so amusingly arrogant as a young man who has just discovered an old idea and thinks it is his own. <laughs> We've known people like that, right? Nothing is so amusing as that. I think we all know people like this. We even have sayings for them. We say about people like that who walk around as if they're a cut above everyone else. We say, so-and-so puts on his pants one leg at a time, just like everybody else. We say that kind of amused at the arrogance of certain people. Sadducees were in that elitist class. As the high elites of their day, they were only tolerated by the people. They weren't loved and respected as they thought they were. In fact, if Josephus is correct, they didn't even impress each other. Josephus said the Pharisees are friendly to one, and to one another and are for the exercise of regard for the, for the public. But the behavior of the Sadducees one toward another is in some degree wild and in their, conf and in their conduct and their conduct with those who are of their own party is as barbarous as if they were strangers to them. They didn't even respect each other. They were so high and mighty in themselves. Least of all, uh, did they impress the common people under them. You see, those who walk around with their noses up in the air usually impress no one but themselves. And in fact, they impress God least of all. God's way is the way of humility. Paul said that because he was privileged to see God, uh, visions of God that others didn't see. Paul said that he was given a thorn in the flesh, lest I should be exalted above measure. Paul understood the importance of humility. And he even understood that some of that humility had to be imposed upon him because of the natural, the tendency of the natural mind to be exalted above measure. That's using Paul's own words. In our opening uh, in Isaiah chapter 66, the Lord says he will look upon those who are of a contrite spirit, a humble spirit, not a proud spirit. We often quote that proverb that says, when pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. Pride goes before a fall. And so the a question I think it's important for us to ask is, are you a humble person? Are you humble with your fellow man? Are you humble with God? They were ignorant of themselves regarding their standing with other men, but secondly, they were completely ignorant, and this is perhaps even worse, regarding their standing with God. Josephus, once again, quoting Josephus, he said, the Sadducees suppose that God is not concerned in our doing or not doing what is evil. They say that to act what is, to do what is good or evil is man's own choice, and that the one or the other belongs so to everyone, so that man may act as he pleases. That's an interesting view of life. It's not exactly a biblical view of life, is it? Seems like Moses, whom they claim to believe, they hadn't even read. Turn with me, and let's remind ourselves what Moses said. Moses that they claimed to believe in. Deuteronomy chapter 10. I think we all need to remind ourselves frequently what is expected of us as followers of Jesus Christ, as believers in the, the faith of Scripture. Notice in verse 12, beginning in verse 12. 
And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. That's simple, right? No problem. Walk in all his ways and love him with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, if you're not humbled yet, he gives some specifics. Notice in verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. No partiality, nor does he take a bribe. You can't buy him off, either with money or with church attendance or with repeating written prayers. No bribes. The New Testament is full of reminders, in fact, to high-minded people that God shows no partiality. No partiality regarding our race, our skin color, our intelligence, our good looks, or lack thereof, our education, our social class, or our wealth, will buy no favor with him. Romans 2 and verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. Galatians 2 and verse 6, Paul says of the other, speaking of the other apostles, he says, from those who seem to be something, whoever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. I wonder if other religious leaders in Paul's day, Christian leaders, professing Christian leaders were offended at words like that. Paul, he doesn't respect me. No, Paul's simply saying what God says. Ephesians 6 and verse 9, Masters, treat your slaves right, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. No partiality. Colossians 3 and verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. All of those distinctions that separate humanity into high levels and low levels, they are nothing with God. 1 Peter 1 and verse 17, If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, and then Peter says, conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here in fear, in fear, in humble fear not in prideful arrogance. So they were ignorant of themselves regarding their standing with other men. They were ignorant regarding their standing with God. And they were ignorant within themselves of their eternal destiny. There's a day of reckoning. It's a day of reckoning for all. Rich and poor will be there on that day of reckoning. The wise and the simple-minded, those of every false religion and every falsely professing Christian will stand before God who will judge us all in truth. The Sadducees were arrogant, often despicable men, but even they were granted a measure of mercy, I would suggest, and I'd, I'll ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 3. Which tells of John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And he was preaching even to the scribes and the Pharisees. These arrogant, despicable men. Who I would say were that even they were given a, a respite. They were given a measure of mercy by hearing the preaching of John the Baptist. And this is what 
was said, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Even the Sadducees and Pharisees heard John making that appeal. And notice in this passage how the common people responded. Those whose humble circumstances gave them a more sober view of the realities and their own vulnerability in life. It says, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Speaking of the common people mostly. They responded. They repented, confessing their sins, and were baptized the baptism of repentance, acknowledging their repentance. But how about the Pharisees and Sadducees? They also came to hear John preach. Shouldn't they get some credit for that? Well, unfortunately, they came for the wrong reason. And notice what John says to them. In verse 7, it says, When he, John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, he says to them, Bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. In other words, don't say to yourselves, We're Jews. We are God's people. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham even from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree, and that's a singular word, by the way, every single tree, which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me, referring to Christ, who is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will separate good from evil, the righteous from the wicked. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So final question this morning. Do you have a sober and humble view of yourself? At least it begins there. Humble in relation to God, humble in relation to others. Let's not forget what Jesus said that it's the meek who will inherit the earth, not the proud. It's my prayer that God will help us all to have hearts filled not with ourselves. We're trying to empty our hearts of ourselves, right? It's my prayer that our hearts will be filled with God and a desire to see him exalted, him lifted up. May God help us to have minds that are filled not with pride and self-praise, as the world loves to do, and in fact, they're proud of the fact that they do it even. But I pray that our hearts would be filled with righteousness, the desire to be righteous, the fear of God, which is the beginning, just the beginning of wisdom. It begins with humility before God. Let us all consider these things as we pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you acknowledging that we are really just a small thing in your eyes. We're told in the book of Isaiah that you look down upon the inhabitants of the earth. You see them not as giants, but as grasshoppers. You've told us that our life is, uh, is in, in this world is even just, it's like a vapor that just vanishes. Lord, those are things that remind us of our frailty. And I pray, Father, that we, as we come before you day by day, that we would acknowledge as we rise each morning, thank you, thank you for the day that you've given. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your compassion upon us. 
Because if we lose that gratitude for those things, Lord, uh, we are vulnerable to the sins of pride that will lead us down the road uh, to terrible things. So, dear Lord, please create in us a humble heart, a contrite heart. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.